Hello and welcome to Pod 45, the podcast companion to Post 45 Contemporaries. My name is Michael Doherty. I'm one of the co-editors of Contemporaries. Today's conversation is a response to our recent cluster of essays on the work of David Berman, who, under the banner of Silver Jews and latterly Purple Mountains, became revered by many of his peers as one of the very finest songwriters of his generation. He's also no less significantly a poet, as well as being a singer, a musician, a cartoonist. Berman sadly died in 2019, and his loss is still felt powerfully today. Joining me to talk about David Berman are David Herring, Sarah Osmond, and Bob Nastanovich. David and Sarah co-edited the David Berman Cluster for Post 45 and wrote its introduction, with David also contributing a further essay to it. And Bob, who we're delighted to have joining us today, was David Berman's friend for many, many years, also his collaborator and bandmate, uh, and of course, uh, for many years also has been a member of uh, Pavement, alongside fellow Silver Jews alumnus Stephen Malkmus. Uh, Bob contributed a very moving postscript to the cluster, um, and we're delighted that uh, all three of our guests are joining us today. Uh, David and Sarah, I thought I'd start with you, if I might, and just ask a little bit about the germination of this cluster. Uh, when did the two of you first realise that you had this uh, shared love, shared affinity for, for David Berman's music and, and writing? And how did that eventually lead you to producing this collection of essays? David, I think you should take the lead on this because this was your brainchild. And I think I, if I'm remembering things correctly, I, ins- I insisted that you help make me be a part of it somehow. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so I first got to know Sarah because I, I pitched an essay to a publication that she was co-editing called Hyped on Melancholy. Uh, and that was back in 2019. And then shortly afterwards, we met in person in uh, Washington, D.C. at a conference. And then after the conference, we were uh, back at a house party and there was a we were all having a conversation and it came up that you had had tickets for the Purple Mountain shows. Uh, and at the time, I was going to interview David in the new year in, in 20. 20 uh, for the UK tour, which was proposed. Um, and I'd also just been to see Stephen Malkmus do a solo show in Manchester. So we got talking away and then we realised, I think, that it was, you know, we had this um, enormous shared affection um, for David's work. And then a little afterwards, uh, I was trying to write something um, about David's work. And it was, uh, it's one of those things where it's like you want to do justice. Uh, you want to do justice to him. And I, I was kind of really wondering about like the way that it would work out. And I was struggling with it a bit. And then I thought, well, hang on, what if this was one essay in a, in a, in a bunch of essays? And the Post 45 collections were really kind of starting to take off at that point. Um, and actually, I think, Sarah, contrary to what you said, it was, it was, it was only ever going to be you who was going to co-edit this. <laughs> I, I think I dropped you a line and said... Did you want to do this? And, and, and you did. So that was, that's how we got started basically. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm so glad that you provided that, um, account. I'd forgotten about that conversation until just now. That was a weird party. Um, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I, I had, as David mentioned, worked with him on a wonderful essay about blur for a publication that I had been editing. Um, and, um, one, um, my sort of like uh, return, let's say, to Berman's work came actually through the magazine. There was um, we did this sort of mini issue um, where previous contributors um, chose a song that they reached for in times of political grief. Um, so we released this special issue, and they we we asked each person to write like a short paragraph about why that song you know, why they reach for it and, and, and all of that. And, and we published this um, series of essays in a moment, like right at the beginning of the pandemic. And also things were looking pretty bleak politically. Um, so it felt like something we could sort of do <laughs> in the wake of like, you know, being in the world together. Um, and, uh, the song that my co-editor Bob and Bob and I chose was, uh, Wild Kindness. 
So um, I had been kind of thinking about um, that song and that record for a long time. And then um, sometime a few months into the pandemic and, and not at all consciously, I um, noticed that I had begun kind of ritualistically rereading actual air. I would like first thing in the morning, like go to a poem and read it and just flip to a page and read the poem and then go on with my day. And I started thinking about like, what, <laughs> why? I mean, the book is magnificent, you know, but it, I also kind of tried to figure out like what was going on with this ritual and why this book and what was this work giving me. And so I felt like, you know, I was so glad that David um, gave me the opportunity to kind of think through this deliberately and, and also hear how other people sort of experienced his work. Thanks so much. Um, Bob, I'd, I'd like to turn to, to you now, if, if I may. Um, you write some beautiful things in your postscript to the cluster, some really uh, wonderful reflections on, on being in, in David Berman's company and, and uh, his writing process and what it was like to be kind of exposed to some of those uh, you know, drafts and ideas as they were germinating. And it's a wonderful glimpse into that, that process. And you talk about having these revelatory moments, as, as I think you put it. Um, can you recall what the first of those revelatory moments was? Was there a first moment when you realized that David had this, this special gift for words in particular, that there was a, you know, that there was something to this guy beyond your, you know, your average guy who shows up at college and thinks he's going to be the next great poet or the next great guy in a band. Because I think lots of us think that, that we're going to be that person. Very, very few of us actually have that gift. Was there a moment where that kind of clicked for you that ah, this guy's got something really special? <clears throat> David's one of the first um, new friends I made, um, at University of Virginia. And I was actually, I used to hang flyers for a local booking agent to the, to the punk rock shows and, and just when cool bands would come through Charlottesville. And, um, so we were pretty fast friends because it was a pretty small amount of people that would go to these, these concerts at the various clubs around town. Um, he's, he was incredibly recognizable in that, particular environment. There's 3,000 students in our class, and David was one who stood out. Obviously, he's very tall and charismatic, and at that point, pretty gothy. And uh, so the first, because he, he'd, he'd grown up in Worcester, Ohio, under the care of his mother, and then when he was a sophomore in high school, sophomore junior, um, he moved from Worcester to Dallas, which was kind of a shock to his system because Worcester was kind of a kind of a low down working class Ohio place. And Dallas um, living with his father was a completely different lifestyle. I mean, he kind of described it as um, he hardly ever ate meals at home. He would his father worked for did a lot of lobbyist works for um, restaurant chains. And he would basically always eat either Bennigan's or steak and ale. And, uh, <laughs> or Chili's or like Charlie O's. I mean, <laughs> and his father was kind of a bit of a, um, a playboy type. Um, he was just, uh, he was, <laughs> so David kind of had this weird mix of these Midwestern kind of ways, but then he'd have this incredibly glitzy, like two years that led up to him going to UVA. And, um, he was an Eccles scholar, which was, a higher plane, like there's Jefferson scholars, which I think there's like four of every year, but then there was like a dorm, a whole dorm of Eccles scholarships, and they're not required to um, declare a major. And I think David, I'm, in fact, I'm sure David, I'm sure David chose to go there because he knew it was a good public university. Um, and he was there because... And this is something that I would never spend a second looking into myself, but he was very aware of the faculty. And the faculty at University of Virginia at the time included two really highly celebrated poets. Um, and poetry is something that um, I have very limited exposure to, just very basic. Um, and it's kind of remained that way. Like I, Like the current poet laureate, 
whose name is Ada Limon. Like I, I know her husband really well, and I, I don't because I, he works in horse racing. You know, if I didn't know him, I don't think I ever would have known her work. Um, and she's brilliant in her own in her own right. David was there because there was two of the English writing professors were Charles Wright and James Tate. Um, and resoundingly enough, within the first year of him being there, those two celebrated writers became keenly aware of his work. Um, so it, it wouldn't be up to me to decide the level of his talent. Um, he was already being celebrated by like, as an 18 year old by these established people, you know, it's like to me that that, to me that meant nothing. Like I was just like his DJ buddy and, um, and we'd go to shows together and we had a, a small group of mutual friends and, uh, we would just hang out together and, um, you know, he's interesting with his, you know, you, back when you hear words like depression, um, when you're that age, at least then in the mid eighties, um, uh, you know, I'd already known a lot of people that, you know, suffered from depression. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times when you're down, you don't really know whether you suffer from it too. I mean, uh, but David clearly had been treated for it since a very young age. And um, so part of his process, his meticulous nature, which really stood out to me, his incredible organization is like little stacks of everything and everything was just like so well planned and so well organized. Like everything about him was like he had a plan going in um, when he was in deeply concentrated work mode, he would isolate himself. That usually meant locking the door of his room. Um, and he would be in there for nearly full days, um, definitely long stints of hours. And David was such an incredible source of entertainment as a personality. I mean, his, his um, he was, and this is one thing that people really need to know about him really kind of all the way through is that he was a supremely fun and entertaining guy. I mean, he was, a he, you know, like when he was sad or dark, he would go away. Um, and then if you knew him and loved him, the best thing to do was to allow him the time he needed to either just lie down in a fetal position or to write. And he was doing both. Um, he was, and I don't really know to what extent he did this before he, he went to university. Um, I don't know if he started this as a teenager or not, but he definitely kicked things into high gear with his writing and he became obsessed with it. So everywhere you went with him, it was, it was normal for him to be taking huge amounts of notes, usually on cocktail napkins or small notebooks. Um, so it got to the point where he was so obsessive about creating and thinking about words and his brain and taking in human experience and what he was looking at and saw and like figuring it out in his own brain. Um, so we saw that and, you know, then and in terms of like, you know, specifically to your question, um, he would show us his work when he felt it was time to show it to people, regardless of their enthusiasm for writing or poetry. Um, he thought that he was actually presenting poetry to people like myself who weren't poetry fans. Um, he, I think, in a, and, and to me, whether he was conscious of, it or, uh, conscious of it or not, his writing really sort of like transcended like how much passion you had for poetry. Like I've never been much of a reader at all. I mean, to a fault. Um, I'm one of the most poorly read people that probably any of you know. Um, but David, uh, <clears throat> Um, 
it was magic. Um, you know, his, his, it, it was just, it was, uh, the ability to entertain. And then like, you know, if you didn't get it and a lot of, a lot of the other, one of the beauties of his work is it was very easy to get. Um, it was very easy to picture what he was writing about. Um, it wasn't complicated. You never really had to look up words to find out what they meant. Um, so it was very, very straightforward. So yeah, from like the start, um, I just imagine that um, he really in the first several months that I became aware of his work that, you know, this guy could, you know, very well be like the best poet in the world, you know, like, and, uh, and yeah, sure. It's one thing that I thought that because um, I didn't really know poetry or know any other poets, but his poetry was so uh intensely great and entertaining and fun for me to read. I'd never experienced poetry like that. Yeah. I, I love what you say in the, uh, the postscript that you got about 80% of it and the bits that you didn't get, you'd ask him and he'd say, got it, Bob. And you'd say, yeah, you know, I got it now. Um, which is a, a great tool to have, right? If you've got the poet right there to fill in the little gaps, uh, that didn't, didn't come in first time. That, that meticulousness in the writing process that that you that you referred to, Bob, when you began making music together, did that meticulousness that that pertained to the words, did that carry over into his approach to musical composition, or was that a you know I've I've been in bands where someone will come in and they will know to the to the nth note exactly what they want you to play and they're a perfectionist to just the same extent as they might be with lyrics. Other bands where somebody comes in, it's, well, I kind of know what I want the feel to be, but, you know, you guys are going to have to help me work it out. Was the approach to musical composition the same or or a kind of looser, more collaborative thing? Um, in regards to Silver Jews, um, because we played in a noise-making thing in college called Ectoslavia, which was really just about making noise sort of in the Einzers and the Neubotten tradition, just trying to be, there was a lot of us and it was just mayhem. Um, silver juice, I mean, complete mayhem, like, um, horrible sounding, um, David, you know, and, but silver juice, see though, probably never would have come into existence if, um, David and I were living in Jersey City with this couple, Joe and Barb Sorelli. And, um, you know, we'd stay up late and we were pretty obnoxious. And uh, so just like abruptly they kicked us out and we had 12 to 18 hours to find another place to live. Um, so at that point we're spending a lot of time down in Hoboken because of Maxwell's and pure platters and just cause it's cool town with great delis and great pizza. And, <laughs> and, the, and the, it just, it was a lot more convenient to live in Hoboken. So, but opportunities were very limited. Our budget was limited. Um, so we, I found this apartment, um, on Willow Avenue that was in a basement and it was, I think it was six fifty a month. It was just, which was ungodly cheap even for then. And, um, it had no hot water. Um, I can still hear David screaming, taking cold showers. Um, <laughs> he's, he's very, very loud. It is a, um, you, I mean, you, you do and you don't get used, used to it. It's a mindset taking a cold shower. Um, but we lived in this wonderful symbiotic relationship below this, below three generations of one Puerto Rican family. And so like, there was like at any time, like eight to 15 people directly above us, like to the point in this building that was sort of falling apart where they might like kind of come through the ceiling. In fact, at one, one point their kitchen sink kind of collapsed down onto my bed, which was a rather grim day. Um, but, uh, that was great for myself, David and Steven, because there's a, there's no way we would ever complain about their noise and, and they weren't, they weren't going to complain about ours. I mean, so we could be as loud as we wanted, um, in Hoboken, you know, so it was like, it was kind of like living in the middle of nowhere, even though you were very much in a busy place. So, um, but the way it worked in terms of the process really always with David. And I do honest, honestly believe that the reason why 
He loved music. He was a huge music fan. We all respected his musical opinions. He had a great radio show. He was so much fun to go to concerts with. He was great to take road trips with. Um, and we, we, we experienced so many great, great live shows together on road trips and it was just wonderful. Steven as well. And that's one of the reasons why we lived in the New York City areas because there was so much going on. You could, you could go out four or five nights a week and see amazing things. I mean, so, um, I think he sort of realized that even though he couldn't play, um, he was sort of excited about, you know, the larval stage of pavement and the attention that it was garnering. And I think he kind of realized that it's hard to make an impact as a poet. Um, so he was kind of like, that's where he kind of figured out, like, I can easily write lyrics, you know, or I can easily take my poems and make lyrics out of them. And with Stephen's brilliance, um, about the same time I was realizing that David's an incredible poet, I was realizing that Stephen is just this insanely talented musician, um, especially his guitar playing, which is, you know, he was one of those people where you could play any song and he'd play it right back to, I mean, he's just absurd. I mean, uh, so the combination of these two incredibly talented people who happened to be my best friends, who I, you know, at, at the time I, I dearly loved, I mean, I, I convinced them both to move up there. I mean, David was so happy. He was living in Austin, Texas, having the time of his life, like after he graduated. And, um, and Stephen, he'd been traveling all around. He was an old, a year older than us. So he graduated. He'd been traveling all around the Middle East. And, um, so he was back in Stockton. He was bored to death. So he was an easy, easy guy to get to move. But, um, David was sort of in Austin during a real glorious period in Austin. And, and um, we got him to come up there. And, uh, you know, within a period of months, um, where we're like kind of like part of, like we're going to shows all the time. We're total outsiders in this, in this scene. Like there was a lot of snobbery in the New York music scene back then. Um, I think really it's sort of an any insulated music scene. And I think all of us have always felt kind of seamless. Um, but yeah, so David, the way it's always, the way it always worked with him, at least when I was in his bands and I'm sure. I think really sort of all the way through to the end, um, even when he'd sort of like uh, over a period of decades had, had taught himself how to play guitar and actually become a viable player. Um, you would just, it would always start with the lyrics. So Stephen would have to build songs around on words on a piece of notebook paper. I mean, even the night before, a few years later, when we recorded Starlight Walker and David was living in Oxford, Mississippi in a chemist lab that cost 150 a month. And Stephen and I went down there and we got there like at six o'clock, five or six o'clock in the afternoon. And not until about 10 that night where we presented about 15 sheets of paper with, with lyrics on them or a poem on them. And then we set out over the period of like three or four hours on, on building songs around them. And for me, it was just keeping time for the most part. And, you know, the next day we're in a recording studio, um, which at the time was the first one I'd ever been. And um, so, yeah, no, I mean, he, it was just a poet, simply a very, very talented poet trying to, with the great assistance of his brilliant musician friend to make songs from his poems. It was that straightforward. And, um, you know, I think that <clears throat> David correctly felt that a lot of his favorite bands, a lot of great bands, a lot of his friends' favorite bands, that he was very critical of bands' lyrics. Um, and so I, I, I think he always thought one thing that like, if my songs have great lyrics and my singing voice is very audible, um, then people will sort of grasp on to my lyrics. Um, and I think that's sort of the enduring appeal is, you know, obviously with David as a musician is that people love his words, but music really just became a vehicle for him to get his words read. 
If he had just made things like actual air and portable February, um, who knows? I mean, who, you know, who, who knows? I mean, he might be a celebrated poet, but like in a very small circle. Um, and even during his lifetime, like, um, you know, I think he had fans and there was, you know, people were anticipating Purple Mountains. People did love Silver Jews and, you know, but he wasn't a huge deal. I mean, um, but I don't, you know, I think that that's the way it is for, for poets. Um, I think it's hard to be a huge deal, uh, as far as I can tell, especially in this day and age of 4,000 forms of entertainment. And I, I was going to ask Bob, actually, the, so he didn't tour for a long time, um, for I think well over a decade. And, uh, I wondered, cause he, he, he would perform, I understand he would perform his poetry publicly at times. Uh, but he, uh, it was a long time. It was until I think it was when Tanglewood Numbers came out, he decided he was going to take the band out. And I, I just wondered, um, what was, what was happening with the not wanting to, to be public with the band, to play publicly, uh, to release records, but not to tour. And, and obviously that changed later. So I'm just curious about that thing about being a, a kind of a public musician, but not really wanting to perform the music initially and what that had to do with his, his work. He, when he went to graduate school at UMass, um, he was doing some teaching and he sort of felt comfortable doing that. And then he became fairly comfortable in various situations with reading his poetry. And he was actually had a following in Romania. I remember he had like a, there was a, like a famous poetry festival in Romania that he, he went and performed several times there. Um, I've actually seen uh, um, videos of him reading poetry. He looked very comfortable and at, at ease. I think that he was so intrigued. So many of his heroes in music, whether it be like Robert Smith or, Nick Cave or, or whomever, he just thought of the, <clears throat> them as these like incredibly charismatic, dynamic performers. And I think it, I think it psyched him out. I think the idea of performing live music, especially when he was, had very rudimentary skills on guitar, that he did not just want to stand up there with a microphone and either sing or talk. He, he had, he'd kind of envisioned himself for several years. I think probably even as a teenager before I knew him as his own definition of rock star. I mean, David was very well defined in his style. He was very particular about clothes. He had strong opinions about appearance. Um, and so I think it was just one of those things that if he could get away with not doing it, then, then that would, that would serve him best. Um, so the last thing he wanted to do was take away from people enjoying his records by, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, sucking live. Um, which, you know, he'd seen pavement suffer through a lot of that. I mean, and like, you know, a lot of his favorite bands who just like were not as good live as he enjoyed the music. Um, I think as time went on and he was able to put together an incredibly talented live band um, with Peyton Pinkerton and Tony Crow and Willie Tyler and Brian Kotzer and his, and his wife, Cassie, all very capable and experienced musicians that he felt that he had a very strong backing band. And that would sort of like help him pull it off. Um, but I tour managed the first five weeks that he did. And, um, it was a physical and emotional struggle for him. Um, in a sense, he'd bitten off more than he could chew. And it was no surprise to me, um, because I'm similar as a musician. Like I don't have a lot of confidence in my acumen or ability to play. In fact, all the way through the nineties being in a band, I was terrified the whole time that I would, that I would screw up. Um, and you know, that's something that we, 
we shared in it. It's it's a highly humiliating thing, and if you if you already suffer terribly from anxiety, um, then it then it makes it difficult. But you know, I think he just wanted to be exactly. He wanted to be perfect, um, and you know, if people cared about Silver Jews and they cared about his music, he wanted them to live love the live show just as much. And I think that that was a hard thing for him to pull off. And, um, yeah, it was a pleasure, you know, a certain amount of those nights, um, seeing him able to do it. Um, but before and after it, it, it was taking a lot out of him. Something that you mentioned, um, in your response, I mean, thank you all. This is so fascinating. Um, and, and something that you touched on Bob in your last um, response about his perfectionism, um, kind of made me think about, I, I don't know if this is a question you can answer, but, you know, um, based on his perfectionism and, and based on his talent as well, I wonder, do you have a sense of, you know, the songs or the poems that he kind of could really stand behind. I mean, was he equally like, was he, was he proud of, um, or, or kind of confident about every thing he put out or were there certain poems or certain songs that were like, this is really dialed in. Like, this is, this is who I am. Um, you know, I don't know if that's a question that, that you could answer, but I, I've always wondered that because, and you know, this is kind of connected too to the, to some of the impression I got from your wonderful, um, postscript, um, you know, just the, the kind of intensity with which he approached writing, um, and, and art making, um, it just kind of made me wonder, you know, um, when you're like a really uh, capable poet and an incredible critic and an incredible self-critic, probably, um, you know, w- w- how does that all kind of shake out? I don't know. Um, were there, you know, songs or poems that seemed to kind of um, put him at ease, um, you know, momentarily, or I don't know. Um, does that does that make sense as a question? Yeah, it makes sense as a question. I can tell you this much, but I can answer that question very easily in that um, if you ever read it or heard it, um, then it had already been through the painstaking process of being siphoned through all of his personal QC. Um, (laughs) There's no way that anything ever would have been on a page or recorded um, and subsequently released to the public that at least for some set of reasons, wasn't good enough. Um, And that he was always determined, um, and really towards the end of the Purple Mountain stuff, like um, adamantly determined to the point of like, uh, I would actually say viciousness at times of defending his... um, of defending his work. Um, you know, and at that point he'd reached such a le- a level um, where he, you know, he was appreciated. He was appreciated worldwide. And that put, that put an increasing amount of pressure on him um, because he, he couldn't just make lo-fi music um, anymore. Like he had sort of established a standard. So, and then I remember the last time I hung out with him, um, which was his birthday week, uh, I guess, you know, kind of exactly eight months before he died. Um, he had become very, very conscious of a lot of writers and musicians that he, as he stated, felt were catching up to him or passing him. He'd felt like because of his depression and how he'd been treated for it, that he was somewhat debilitated as a wordsmith. So it became that much more difficult. And he was questioning himself a lot more, whether it be rappers or folk singers or poets. He just felt that there was a burgeoning amount of really talented people. And um, it was throwing him off because I think for several years there, you know, throughout the 90s and, and well into the millennium, 
I think he really felt like as confident about his writing um, as could be. But then, like, as the Silver Jews ended um, and he embarked on an unusual project of writing about his dad, um, which I, I mean, I thought was very ill-advised. Um, and, uh, and so did one of our dear friends from university too, Jeff Dukes, who, um, was a friend and confidant of David's who lived in Chicago or lives in Chicago actually. And, and, uh, Jeff's not the type that really speaks up very often. Um, he's a very, uh, private individual and, but he'd known David for so long and loved David and he realized it would make an input impact on David if he gave him, um, some advice from the heart cause he never really had. And so that, I mean, it just seemed like a bad idea, but you no, know, in terms of your question, if you saw it in actual air portable February or anywhere else, you know, anything on open city or, you know, saw it on a drag city record for a pretty established and long set of reasons. Even if it's a song that like seems like eminently discardable to a silver Jews fan, like, um, you know, some of the songs are, are pretty frivolous in one take, especially in the early days. Um, and, uh, but I mean, he, he, he thought it was great. And I mean, of course, like, you know, when it comes to the music, um, Koretsky's opinion, you know, Drag City was uh, an incredibly significant one to him, as was the opinion of some of his peers on Drag City. Drag City's kind of an interesting little group of people there. Um, you know, and David was sort of, you know, kind of an advisor on that label. Um, and had, you know, a very, you know, he was always at the bargaining table. And I think they had a lot of fun looking at it that way. But Will Oldham, um, you know, his opinion on David's stuff was important to him. Um, Malcolmus, you know, to an extent at various times. So yeah, I mean he he would he would not have um in terms of his words, um I'm sure there's a massive amount of stuff that was probably pretty awesome that he either got sick of and discarded um or for some reason just got rid of it. A lot of what you've been saying there, Bob, puts me in mind of um a couple of comments that, that, that David made in, in interviews that I've been rereading recently where he would be talking about really the kind of, uh, the kind of grand old men of sort of legacy rock and roll, your Van Morrison's, your Bob Dylan's, your Tom Petty's, your Lou Reed's and, and what he perceived as their failure to maintain artistry in their later careers. And, and part of how he expressed it was, when they started just touring all the time, they weren't thinking so much about the writing anymore. But then he goes on in one of these interviews to, to basically say, nobody cares about anything Bob Dylan did apart from that four-year hot streak in the mid-60s. The first time I read that, I'm thinking, well, that's quite a statement to make. But then thinking about it in terms of, of what you've just been saying, it gives you a sense, I suppose, of the standard to which he was holding himself, right? If If the only Bob Dylan songs you think are good enough are, you know, the ones on those three or four albums in, you know, 65, 66, then, uh, that's, that's a fairly high bar to be, to be setting. He was very much the same way about Stephen's writing, um, as a songwriter. And Stephen obviously is deservedly revered as, as a, you know, really talented guitar player and songwriter. Um, David, um, became very critical of Stephen's lyric writing. Um, which made their friendship pretty stressful and strenuous, um, for Stephen because Stephen really looked up to David, obviously, as a brilliant poet and lyricist. And Stephen, um, was influenced by David and sort of encouraged by David to write lyrics. And at a certain point, um, David, just thought that Stephen had written a bunch of really, really good songs with really good lyrics. And then at a certain point, um, he stopped being able to do that, and never got it back. So not only was it, you know, legends of music like Dylan and the others that you mentioned, 
Um, it was also like his peers um, who had garnered a certain amount of, of success. Um, it was intimidating. I mean, like, um, he would always encourage me to write, um, you know, really, really sort of in a very kind and um, nurturing sort of manner. Um, and then I think one of the reasons he did that was so he'd have something to laugh at. <laughs> Um, which was fine. Like, you know, like, um, you know, Dave is one of those people that, uh, any time that he is, was, you know, s- sincerely, ex- um, experienced h- hilarity, um, you're willing to take a fair amount of the abuse just to see him overjoyed. <laughs> I was also thinking like kind of in connection to what you're just saying about his, uh, like the humor of his music as well. And, and of his poetry, uh, that it's quite, in some ways, it's quite unusual to uh, to think about humour and rock music. It's a kind of, it's often a bit of a vexed question. And, uh, but also um, thinking about the role of humour in his, in his poetry as well. And like, to the extent that like some of the the lyrics are, are actual gags, basically. Um and but very often, like the gag is immediately met with like something incredibly moving, incredibly heartfelt. Um, and I, I was thinking about before when you were saying he was extremely entertaining uh, as a person. There's, there's obviously, you know, there's obviously uh, he's he's a someone with a very great kind of sense of humor. It's unusual, I think, yeah, to see that in in music and poetry so much. So I wondered, did you could you maybe talk about? a bit about his like his sense of humor i suppose could i add just one Very quick thing to that <laughs> cuz i love that question just that it what strikes me as so unusual about the role of humor in part is that it's never it could be so easily like a gimmick that he could just trot out again and again and it never f- feels that way to me in the poetry or in the lyrics so um yeah anyway i didn't mean to I just wanted to add. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. Not at all. Yeah. No, I mean he uh, he loved jokes and he lo- loved riddles and um, I wouldn't say that he actually followed too many comedians. Although you know, of course, when he was growing up, you know, some of the best comedians and and uh, you know existed. Um, you know, Richard Pryor and Bill Hicks and you know, there's. I mean, there's more. I just that's all I can think of. I mean, Stephen Wright. Um, so he just like kind of, uh, but he was like a full body laugher and he, he was, um, you know, he kind of surrounded himself with like humorous, sarcastic, ridiculous people that he could, that had thick skin that he could sort of get away with making fun of and laughing at their expense. Um, which was fine. Um, cause you know, he, he, he you know, I mean, he proved over and over again, like how much he loved his friends. I mean, so you're willing, and it was a lot of give and take. Like, believe me, David took a lot of abuse, um, from his friend. I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, abuse, abuse, like the dark kind of abuse, like that we all sadly hear about all the time. It was, um, it was, it was a vicious cut down. I and mean, basically, you know, the two of us had, had this lifestyle that we actually, you know, for years being around each other, we called cut and hug. Um, we would, we would, uh, absolutely kind of like destroy each other and, uh, fight and argue all the time. And, uh, and, you know, a few times that actually boiled over into some pretty traumatic experiences. Um, and, uh, in fact, um, one time we got in an argument and David, when we first started, like <laughs> he used to have this unusual habit, um, of he wore um, combat boots a lot and he would kick, he was a kicker. Um, so he would like get up, lean back on the couch and kick at you. And I was like, come on, man. Like, and uh, <laughs> so we'd get in the, we'd get in these arguments and like, sometimes they'd boil over and like, one in Jersey City, I remember Malkness was witness to, and it really upset Malkness. I actually haven't, actually haven't ever seen Stephen upset, this upset too many times, but we got in a really, really big brouhaha, and it boiled over into a wrestling match, and I dragged him down the hallway and, and gave him a swirly, 
And, uh, and um, he was a big lad, too. That required a lot of um, anger and adrenaline. And uh, it upset Stephen. And then one time we got in a bad fight in that same apartment in Hoboken. And um, he was strangling me. And I I panicked. Um, and I kind of took his head and I slammed it into a card table. And he split his head open. Not Not bad, but he did have to go to the emergency room. And I was so mad at him. That he, that he, you know, he walked to the emergency room on his own, and I went and saw Southern Culture on the skids play at Maxwell's without a care in the world, um, which was, you know, insensitive. But I thought, like, you know, whatever. So yeah, I mean, like, but like, there was a lot of, there was a lot of that kind of tension, and um, yeah, there, and so you know, it it would go from being really hilarious to then you know, the emotion would just, you know, we'd get a little bit carried away. But uh, the goal when he was out, um, when he was out amongst his friends, um, the goal was to be kind of outrageous and kind of say and do hilarious things. And um, it was sort of always like that. I mean, there was like, uh, there was never a dull moment. Um, if there was dull moments with David, we never saw him because his, that's that would be when his door was shut. And then he was, you know, very much one of those people that made it very clear um, to stay away from him. And that was, I mean, look, if somebody wants to be stayed away from, I'm cool with that. I, I remember, like, some of the most beautiful memories I have of David when he was in university living in the red house, he had this huge room. It was a fantastic room. You know, he's again, he's, his, his taste and design um, was amazing. And, uh, he was, a, he was a certain style. It's like Robespierre's velvet basement or something. He's, he was a big Nicky Sutton fan. And like, uh, his office, he actually had like, it was an L shaped room and had an office and had like a beautiful old lamp. And like, there was nothing on the windows and like, he couldn't see you. And one time I went over there, me with this, me and this guy, John Atkinson, who I lived with for a while, we went over there to see what David was doing. It was like one o'clock in the morning on a Friday night and we couldn't get in touch with him. So we looked at him through his, his office window and he was on his old typewriter, just like, and we're standing like just on the other side of the window and he's like feverishly typing and he has no idea that two dudes are, are looking at him and he was he was so into it and so fervent that he was chewing his bottom lip so hard that his lip blood was like dripping down his chin. And I was like, man, like <laughs> dude is concentrating, you know, like, um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and like, eventually I kind of got concerned like that, you know, this seems like it's kind of bad. And, um, I knocked on the window and then like, you know, within 10 or 15 minutes, like, you know, whatever, he wiped his mouth up and I think we were, you know, running around town for last call or something stupid like that. Um, but he like, you know, the other one, weird thing about David, um, one funny story that just popped in my head that always blew my mind about him is that, you know, we all had jobs in college. In fact, we got to know each other a lot better and we were, we were washing dishes at a, at a restaurant called Eastern Standard. The three dishwashers were, were David, myself, and Steve Keen. And Steve, Steve had like painted the whole dish room like, you know, like a series of like 30 Steve Keens. It was pretty amazing. And it was like an old, style restaurant that just had a sink. I mean, like that's, that was the dishwashing mechanisms. Like you'd be covered from head to toe in dishwater, but David's other job that he worked like 12 to 15 hours a week was for the university of Virginia hospital. And, um, he would come home in scrubs and his job was just like, not a job you choose, um, for somebody who's psychologically unwell. And that was to wash, to give, baths to burn victims um so he would he would show up like and there'd be these people with like horrible burns and he would he'd have to give them a bath like he describes these scenes of like showing up you know with his equipment to bathe people or burn victims and people just looking at him and screaming you know like because it because it hurts so badly and i was like i remember saying to david like don't you make like nine bucks an hour? Like, you know, like I make like 11 driving a bus around the campus. Like 
that just sounds like, I don't know, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that sounds like it might not be, but I mean, you just did it. Cause I mean, who knows why? I mean, like, you know, who know he, he, he did it because, you know, he was, I guess he felt it was, you know, a, a, a random and kind job to take on part time and probably something where they were appreciate, appreciated him a great deal to see him show up for work. Yeah, something I, I wondered I'd ask all of you about, obviously we've talked rightly a lot about David's gifts as a, as a lyricist and, and a poet and, and a bit about the music too. We haven't talked so much about David Berman, the singer, um, which, which I think is perhaps an aspect of, of his art that uh, because the lyrics are so great that we maybe don't pay quite enough attention to. Obviously, he had that that famous line, all my favorite singers couldn't sing, and there's that kind of very Berman-esque implicit self-deprecation in that. But he could sing. And 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 what may have been lacking in, you know, range and kind of vocal histrionics, there's there's a lot going on in phrasing and inflection. And what you were saying, um, David, a moment ago about humor, you know, how you sell those punchlines in the middle of a song is difficult to do. Um so what what do we feel the the Berman vocal style adds to what's already present in those incredible lyrics? I think that as he got comfortable with with hearing his own voice, um, doing readings and teaching classes, and his after he left UVA in his early twenties at UMass, and he got to know several fellow poets, um, Eric Forrest and Steve Healy and Matt Hunter and Peyton Pinkerton, who were, who were in New Radiant Storm King, that were both in various inceptions of Silver Jews. Um, I think that he, he sort of got used to how his voice sounded, which is a very difficult thing because I think you almost have to be, almost you have to be narcissistic to actually like the way your voice sounds. Um, I, I can't stand the way my mind sounds. And, um, you know, a lot of people have told me that, you know, I've, I've got a good voice for sports casting or whatever, or radio. Um, it makes me cringe to hear my own voice. Um, and I think David got used to using his voice, um, you know, pretty basically to express the, the, the words he'd written. Um, and obviously I think one thing that was most significant to him is that since he, he was loud and clear, um, and so that was the main thing that he had going for him is that you can hear a certain amount of expression. You can hear sadness. You can hear desperation. You can hear joy. You can hear, you can hear the emotions that are the words. And it didn't take much effort. Um, sure, you know, like a lot of, like a lot of brilliant songwriters, you sort of like the, you know, the anti Whitney Houston in terms of singing ability or something, but like, um, range and stuff, you know, a lot of, a lot of singers from, you know, the genres of music that he participated in suffered to the, the same thing. One of, one of his heroes was Johnny Paycheck and Johnny Paycheck can't sing. Um, so in terms of the technical thing, I think it's just, I think that he figured out a way to, ex- um, use his voice to express the words. And the most important thing is that you don't really have to struggle with this amount of space in the music. You don't really have to struggle to hear his words. Um, you know, it's not the kind of artist where you need subtitles or you need to read the lyric sheet. Um, even though, you know, and then of course, which is rather important because I think most Silver Jews fans are attracted to the music and Purple Mountains fans, of course, are attracted to the, to the music because of listening to the lyrics. And that's why the songs were written. And that's why they, you know, in the case of Purple Mountains, why it took so long. Um, you know, just again, that like, like we were talking about earlier, Michael, like the perfectionism almost became crippling. Um, I think a lot of his friends around Nashville and myself, like, um, it really, all I could really, all I could talk about was his own record. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't have cared because I, I'm not a songwriter, but a lot of his friends in Nashville who are musicians and, um, were kind of annoyed by that. <laughs> 
I, I'm so glad you said that, though, about the range of emotions that you can hear in his voice, because I think I, I read things, I've read, you know, descriptions of his voice that describe it as deadpan. And, and I, I just think that's not what's going on, <laughs> really. I mean, there, well, you, can there, hear his, you can hear his voice crack. I mean, you know, a lot of times when he wants it to crack, you can hear it crack and... That's not really by design. That's him thinking about the words that he's singing. Um, and like, you know, yeah, so he would have, I mean, like, you know, he would have listened back and heard that it cracked, but then he would have thought that it was probably perfect. You can hear a lot of pain in the songs that are painful. And then you can hear, you know, kind of a lot of like, you know, normalcy and kind of swing along and a guy that's sort of, you know, a singer that's sort of content with himself and you can hear joy. I mean, like, no, I think that the emotion um, is expressed to, to, to generally match the words. Um, you know, yeah, I think, yeah, it's pretty easy. And I think you probably know as well as I do um, that there are a lot of people making decent money as music journalists that don't even bother listening to the record that, or they listen to it once, or they just read. I mean, just the same reason why like everybody has the same top 10 and top 50 lists at the end of the year when there's, especially in this day and age, I mean, there, I think if we, if, if we listen to music 20 hours a day for 360, there's no way you'd cover it. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, there is, you know, and it's kind of a shame because um, you do see a lot of brilliant people, you know, slip between the cracks. And, um, you know, I think that it is interesting in David's case that, um, you know, he did have fans, um, and he, he did have fans that would seek out his work and, um, you know, again, I've, I've done it before and I'll, I'll do it again, but, um, you know, between, especially Drag City and then Open City to to a great extent. Um, that you know they were his patrons. I mean, Dan, Dan, Dan had unbelievable amount of patience for David's artistic process and just working with him in general. But that's sort of like, um, that's kind of the that those the you know Dan's going to work with artists that he that he loves and appreciates and thinks are brilliant. And um, you know, I'm sure if pressed on the question, David would be you know, so important to him and, you know, without a unique personality and an unusually patient person for that industry, like Koretsky, then yeah, no, a lot of people, a lot of the, who knows, who knows what happened, but you know, the fact that everything that David wanted out got put out is a credit to Drag City and Open, uh, Drag City and Open City. Uh, David and Sarah, I wonder if I, if I could ask you something kind of in some ways picking up on the, the flip side of, one of Bob's earlier answers about about David using uh, music initially, at least as as a a response to thinking this is this is a way I can get people to listen to me in a way that perhaps poetry doesn't doesn't provide a platform that is as as large or as, as public or or whatever. Do you think that there is an extent to which, with you know, speaking to you as a David Berman fans, but b also scholars, that there's an extent to which Berman the poet, um, and and you know actual air in particular, perhaps aren't taken as seriously as they ought to be within academic criticism because there's this whole other bit of well, this David Berman was this this rock star, this musician, this guy who had this other life. Um, because I think you know there are there are many people who dabble in both worlds very few who actually are genuinely great in both. Um, and, and clearly David Berman was, was one of those few. So do you think there is an extent to which having that parallel life as a musician has perhaps in some contexts um, made it harder for the poems to get the hearing they deserve? Is it because he wasn't boring enough? <laughs> 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 I think, um, I, I mean, I think part of the answer to that is like connected to what we're doing right now, which is that, the, you know, there has emerged over the last few years, new and different spaces for like academic or academic related stuff that is not, 
in you know certain earlier kind of gate kept spaces, things like peer review journals or stuff like that, and that actually, you know, I mean, I'm far from the only person to talked about this, but like the, there is now a kind of uh, there's another space for academic criticism that does something a bit different or that takes as the object of its study something a bit different and that has a much greater leeway in what it can do and what it can talk about. Um, so, you know, if you were, you know, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, trying to get something like this together, I imagine it would be a great deal more difficult uh, than it is now. Whereas the fact that we can put these clusters of essays out um, from scholars who are doing something that is like, not, it's not quite a journal article, it's not quite a, like a personal essay, it's not quite a uh, like a review, it's 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 in this kind of new new place for writing, and I mean this that is why this format seems so perfect uh, for talking about David's work um, because I think yeah sometimes the new spaces have to emerge to be able to talk about it I guess yeah I think I think uh, David's absolutely right that um, <laughs> it's a problem that he did he hasn't been taken seriously and as our intro points out that his work as a whole hasn't been thought about as a continuous project um and i think i mean i think you're right michael that i mean i think there's also an issue with um poets and scholars and they don't always get along and i i've always <laughs> thought about david as a poet's poet um, which is not to say that his his work is not worthy of scholarship. It certainly is. In fact, I was just having dinner with somebody, uh, a poet, who's also an academic, last week, who said that Berman is the only one he can think of who was able to carry the tor torch of John Ashbery. And that's a huge claim to make, and I think a right one. So many people have tried to imitate Ashbery's style or voice, um, and... Um, and I think Berman sort of was able to inherit what he learned from Ashbury, Tate, you know, Wright, and so forth, but also make it his own thing. Um, and so, and I think poets recognize that. And I, I think scholars are starting to, <laughs> um, and hopefully more will right after, after this cluster comes out. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's a shame. And I think, um, it's, you know, the, the work helpfully um, transcends these very insular communities, you know, like indie rock and um, MFA poetry in like Western Massachusetts, like, you know, like the stuff transcends those, even, as much as scenes are important, and they are, his, you don't have to be, I mean, to go back to something that Bob said, you don't have to be like in a scene to get what he's doing, you know? And I think mm -hmm. that wide appeal is going to, is, is, I think we're going to see a huge interest scholarly and otherwise in his, in his work. I'd, I'd like to add your comment, um, if I could, that, um, and, and ensure you all, um, that David was an incredibly competitive person. And that was from the start. Um, and yes, he did. He was well-versed um, and he was, um, you know, obviously a student for a long time. And when he wasn't in the classroom, he was constantly reading words of, of dozens of poets that he respected and in some cases revered and also lyricists and, he unquestionably wanted to be better. Um, and that, that goes back to the question that you asked, like if the first question you asked in regards to, yeah, it, I mean, there's no way that you would, it would, have, it would have ever reached your desk, regardless of your level of interest, unless he thought it was worth putting out. Um, and that's like, that's why I mentioned, you know, towards the end that he was, I wouldn't say he was panicking, but he was, um, he thought it was a combination of the fact that, you know, perhaps his brain was a little bit fried and that, um, that, you know, a combination of that and that there, there, there's some seriously talented people around him. Like, I think he felt like he was riding the crest of a wave for over a decade. Um, and that was, you know, maybe 
it was a comment on his own feebleness um, towards the end, you know, clearly affected by years of kind of powerful treatments, um, hundreds of different powerful treatments um, to try to help him. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, I'm 55 now and, um, I mean, you, it, and you know, and my mother's 86 and, you know, you do, it is weird. Like you don't, you're more conscious of how your sharpness is dwindling. <laughs> and if you're somebody like David, that is so in his own mind and constantly trying to create, um, then it, it's yet another reason to drive him crazy. That was Bob Nastanovich, Sarah Osmond, and David Herring. You can read the David Berman Cluster at post45.org slash contemporaries now. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please do subscribe on your podcast platform of choice if you haven't already, and if you'd like to leave us a positive rating and review, that does help other people find the show, and we appreciate it very much. My name is Michael Doherty. You've been listening to Pod 45.